The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let us continue to worship God by hearing Him address us, being good hearers of His Word. Our passage is John 13, verses 31 through 38. I invite you to turn there now to the Gospel of John, John 13, verses 31 through 38. Again, this is to look at a portion of Scripture before our study of the book of Leviticus, which I look forward to been digging into that. It's a, you're going to be surprised how good it is. You don't think about Leviticus being the book that oh, we want to study. Uh, but it really is quite good. Of course, every book is good. You just don't see it until you start digging in, and it's, it is quite good. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but this morning we have Jesus speaking to us in John 13, 31-38. Of course, glorious, wonderful uh, passage for our encouragement. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, let's not give our attention to God speaking to us in His Word. This is God's very Word. When... He had gone out. Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet in a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades. The The word of our God endures forever. And what we have just heard is the Word of God. May God now be pleased to add His blessing to the preaching of His Word. Well, there was a common phrase used to describe the Reformation, and that phrase was, after darkness, light. After a period of darkness in the church where the gospel was obscured, the light of the gospel once again shone forth brightly. And this phrase is a fitting description of our passage today. After darkness, light. As we saw last week, the storyline of the Gospel of John took a dark turn. Judas went out to betray Jesus. And after that happened, the Bible says, and it was night. And while it was literally night, it was also symbolically night. Jesus has been talking about this in the Gospel of John. He's saying that the night is coming when His public 
ministry will come to an end because he is going to suffer greatly at the hands of wicked men. And the night which Christ said was coming has now arrived. The dark hours of Christ's most intense sufferings for our sins has come upon him. But after we read that it was night and this darkness coming, we get an unexpected response from Christ in these following verses. He does not speak in terms of doom and gloom. He does not sound downcast or down in the dumps despite his soul being troubled. Rather, he sounds triumphant and exultant. He talks like a hopeful victor rather than a helpless victim. But how can this be? How can Christ speak of such good and glorious things when such dark things are about to happen? Well, the reason for this is because after this darkness will come light. In fact, God will use the darkness to bring about this light. And so what I want us to look at is an outline. Three results of the light of the gospel that dispels the darkness. Three results of the light of the gospel that dispels the darkness. The first is the glory of God. The second is a new commandment. And third, our dependence upon Christ. First, the glory of God, beginning in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So right after Judas went out to betray Christ, this is the first thing Christ says. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now God is glorified in Him. And the Son of Man is one of the terms used for the Messiah in the Old Testament that comes from the book of Daniel. There, a Son of Man, who is born of man, but glorified as God, receives glory, honor, praise, and worship from all peoples and nations, and a kingdom that has no end. But here in John, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed and go to the cross and die a shameful death as a criminal. This sounds like a great defeat. So why would he say that now is he glorified and God is glorified in him? Well, it's because what Christ will undergo will bring glory to God and will result in him being glorified. Glory refers to the demonstration of God's greatness that should cause us to worship him. The sufferings of Christ, especially His work on the cross, demonstrate in the greatest way God's glory. The great wisdom of God is on display at the cross in that God both forgives sinners, thus demonstrating His mercy, but doing so without compromising His justice. Because our sins are paid for in full. They're justly dealt with and not swept under the rug. So God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. This puts on display His mercy, His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, 
His wisdom. This brings Him glory. The cross brings glory to God. And of course, the great love of God was displayed for us at the cross. What greater manifestation of love towards sinners is there than God giving up His only begotten Son, having Him take the penalty, bear hell for us, so that we would not bear hell. Not because we were good or we convinced God to do this, but freely, apart from anything that we had or were. This is a free gift. And it shows His free love and grace towards sinners. And we see Jesus go on to say in verse 32, if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Well, this verse is better translated as, since God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him with Himself. And this means that since God is glorified in His Son, when His Son is glorified, He will be glorified. This is because the Son, the eternally begotten Son, is the Word and revelation of God. He's the exact imprint of His nature. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And so God the Father is glorified in His Son. His glory is in His Son. And so when His Son is glorified, He inseparably is glorified together with His Son. And this will happen at once, as Jesus says at the end of verse 32. This means that God will not delay in glorifying His Son upon finishing His work of redemption. This is that glory that the book of Daniel spoke of, that the Son of Man will be glorified. Now, of course, Christ won't rise until three days in fulfillment of the Scriptures. However, this is no delay for God. God is keeping His promises in that his Messiah, His anointed one, will not see corruption, but will rise from the dead, will ascend into heaven, and will be seated at His right hand in majesty on high. And this is why Jesus says in verse 33, Little children, yet in a little while I am with you. You will seek Me and just as I said to the Jews, so also now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus is fully confident that the cross is not the end, but that He will go to be with the Father. And His disciples will not be able to follow Him, just as He said to the Jews back in John 7.34. Where I am, you cannot come. Now when He said that to the Jews, it's because they're going to die in their sins. But when He says that to His disciples, it's because they can't follow Him, as He says here, now. But they will afterward. But they will, upon dying, see Him. So there will be great light after darkness. Even in the midst of this darkness, in that this will all be for the glory of God. And this gives us hope. We look around, we see a dark world. We live in a dark world. And a lot of times we're sold this false belief that 
here we can have our best life now if we just follow God's plan and we just have the right steps. God will bless us with our best life now. But we forget that we live in a sin-cursed and dark world. Here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. But we do not despair when we see darkness around us. We do not despair when we see a dark world. We know it's fallen because of sin. But we know that God uses darkness to bring about good. And we see that at the cross. The greatest darkness in the Son of Man being betrayed, God used for the greatest manifestation of His glory in this world. This is the kind of God that we have. And we come now to a second result of the light of the gospel that dispels the darkness, and that is a new commandment. Verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, I think it's important to keep in mind where Jesus is saying this. He's saying this right after Judas leaves to betray him. Of course, they're to do the opposite, but this begins his final address to his disciples before he dies and departs from them physically. This is oftentimes called the farewell discourse by the commentators and and scholars because Jesus is saying these things in light of him leaving. And we reserve, or we should reserve, some of the most important things before we depart from this world. Imagine for a moment that you're on your deathbed and your kids are surrounding you. You're not going to just have small talk at that time. You're going to want to impart the most important things to them. What's the most important thing I want to leave with my kids? before I draw my final breath, is how you should think, is how we would think. And here, Jesus is about ready to depart from them, and so he wants to impart some of the most important things to them. And Right after he tells them in verse 33 that in a little while he will no longer be with them, he gives this commandment, love one another. This demonstrates that this is important to Christ and therefore should be important to us. And notice that Christ says that we are to love one another just as he has loved us. And how has Christ loved us? If we are to fulfill this commandment, we need to know how he has loved us. How has he loved us? Well, these disciples just saw an example of this moments ago when Jesus humbly washed their feet. So love involves humbly serving one another, seeking to serve even in lowly tasks that aren't glamorous. Love always seeks the benefit of others and considers their needs. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, with regards to following Christ's example, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interests of others. This love will involve sacrifice on our part. If we are to love the way Christ 
has loved us, it will involve sacrifice because we think of the greatest display of his love, which he talked about later on. And he said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And this is exactly what Christ did for us. He laid down his life to save us from the wrath of God. It's one thing for somebody to push us out of the way of a, of a truck and get hit by it. Wow, what an amazing act of sacrifice and love. But it only keeps us physically alive. But Christ didn't just stand in front of a truck. He stood in front of the wrath of God and bore it fully in His soul so that we would not have a drop left of it for us. He drank that cup dry so that the cup of blessing would overflow to us. This is His love. This is His grace to us. And Christ says, as I have loved you, therefore love one another. Of course, we can't bear the wrath of God for one another, but we can serve them sacrificially. And if we're honest, I think that we can all agree that loving others is very difficult. It's easy to love those who love you back and are good to you. Uh, Jesus says as much in Matthew 5, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Unbelievers do that. Those who don't have the Spirit do that. But only sons of God can love their enemies and do good to those who persecute them. Only the children of God can bless those who curse them because Christ blessed them by becoming a curse for them. And if you think about that long list of love in 1 Corinthians 13, it's usually read at weddings. What's the first thing mentioned on that list? Love is patient. Love is patient. When do you exercise patience? Is it when somebody is doing good to you, obeying every wish, understanding you perfectly, agreeing with you about your will? Is that when you exercise patience? Or is it when they are causing you stress and grief, misunderstanding you? You see, we are quick to give up or get out as soon as we are offended. We might put on a front and be nice, be socially polite. But the question is, are we gracious? Grace is to say, even though this person has offended me, tried me, misunderstood me, I will heartedly love this person anyway because my heart seeks their best interest despite how they treat me. Love seeks to bless and benefit the other person apart from how good their works are towards us. If we are to love one another as Christ has loved us, then we must love one another even when they sin against us or are not good toward us. Think about it this way. Does Christ stop loving you when you sin against Him? I'd hope you'd answer no. 
His love is free. You understand what it means for love to be free, right? It means that it's not based on you. Therefore, you didn't earn it, and neither can you unearn it. Because it's not based on you. It's free. It's grace. If this was the case, then we should love one another as Christ has commanded us. And this love is the mark of a true disciple. If you want to know if you're a disciple of Christ, do you love His people? First John will actually say that. He says this in verse 35, By this all people will know that you are My disciples if you have love for one another. So not only is it, well, you know, but all people will know that we are His. That we are Christians if we have love for one another. You know, today there's a great emphasis on outreach. Focusing uh, on reaching uh, those outside the church, which of course is a great thing. We should be committed to that. Uh, But the way that many think we should go about it is by focusing on benevolent ministries outside the church, uh, loving those on the outside, which of course is a good thing. should not be rejected. But here's what gets overlooked. This verse here, that all people, those on the outside, will know that we are Christ if we love one another. This is how people know that we are Christ if we love His people. You know, anyone can organize a fun community event or give to the poor. There are several unbelieving charities that do that. It's not distinctly Christian. But only believers can love one another the way Christ has loved them. In the 2nd century, Tertullian, one of the church leaders and teachers, reported what the pagans were saying of Christians in that day. And what they were saying is, see how they love one another. See how they are ready to die for one another. Can that be said about us? As it was said of the Christians there in the second century. See, Christians are not known by putting a Jesus fish on their car or wearing a Christian t-shirt. I can't tell you how many times I've been cut off by somebody with a Christian fish on their car. And if I admit it, 20 years ago, I had a Christian fish in my car and I shouldn't have had one. Because I drove pretty terribly. I'm a little better now. You see a little black car squealing around a corner, you know who it is. But rather, Christians are known for their love for one another. Now Christ called this a new commandment, and some of us may be wondering, well, how is this a new commandment? God told His people Israel in Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And notice that the sons of your own people is interchangeably used with people of Israel, your neighbor. In Israel's context, their neighbor was their own ethnic flesh and blood. It was their brothers. So that commandment has already been given, so how is it a new commandment? Well, I believe it's new in these ways. First, it comes in light of a new example or expression. Jesus laying down His life for His people. Old Testament, 
Uh, you are to love one another, not hold a grudge against one another, serve one another. But here is a new expression of this commandment. Jesus laying down His life for us. And so this new commandment includes the phrase, as I have loved you, in light of His work on the cross. Second, it is new in the sense that all those in the new covenant community are able to fulfill it because of the new life we have in Christ. The Apostle John explicitly says why this commandment is new in 1 John. Regarding this new commandment, John says in 1 John 2, 7 and 8, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So this commandment, in the overall context of the book of John, is this commandment to love one another as Christ has loved us. And John says that this has been with us from the beginning, hence it's not old. And beginning in the book of John can refer to even the Garden of Eden. Going back to the beginning, 1 John 3.8, the devil has been sinning from the beginning, it says. So God has always commanded His people to love. However, it is also new. And in what sense is it new? Well, John goes on to explain here that it is true in Him and in you. Now that phrase, in Him, is a phrase that refers to union with Christ. Being placed in Christ. Being one with Christ in spirit. Where we have this invisible but very real spiritual connection with Christ. This unbreakable bond so that all the benefits and blessings come to us in Christ through union with Him. So this commandment is true in Christ. It is true in the sense of actual, or it has come to reality in us who believe. Notice that John says it is true in Him and in you, that is, believers. It is true by being in Christ, united with Him. This is how it becomes a reality. Being united to Christ in His life, death, and resurrection, so that the old self has died, buried with Christ, and the new self has come alive, Christ now living in us. As Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And so this is how it is true in us. It's that Christ is living in us, and we are able to fulfill this commandment now. We no longer walk in the darkness, but we walk in light. And as John says, it's true because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. This explains the Christian life. As Proverbs 4.18 says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So according to John, this commandment is not new but old because it was from the beginning. However, it's new, and that it has come to reality in this new covenant community where all of God's 
people have circumcision not of the flesh, but of the spirit. The old covenant community, physical relationship to Abraham, physical circumcision marked off that community. New covenant community, John says, circumcision of the spirit, it's true in you. And as he will go on to say, you all have the anointing of the Spirit. So God's people who are the true circumcision are able to begin to fulfill this. Of course, won't do it perfectly. So that's why this is new. Finally, a third result of the light of the gospel that dispels the darkness. We have seen that it brings glory to God. First, second, new commandment. Third, Dependence or faith upon Christ. Because Christ would die and rise again. He's not this dead Messiah that was defeated. He's a victorious Messiah who underwent death for us but rose again. We cast ourselves fully in Christ to deliver us from our darkness. We see a negative example in verses 36-38 of this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So first, Peter misunderstands what Christ meant here. He thought that Christ was referring to another physical place. Why can't I follow you? I've been following you for three years. What do you mean I can't go with you to this next place? But what we see here is a demonstration of self-confidence that should never be in any Christian. Of course, it's deeply rooted in us and it needs to continually, continuously be rooted out. But we do see a negative example here. And I think the scripture includes this here. For us at this juncture, in light of what Christ just got done seeing regarding the new commandment, the power to fulfill this new commandment does not come from us relying on ourselves, but rather in Christ. We do not place any confidence in the flesh, as Paul says. We do not believe in ourselves. That's worldly philosophy. Rather, it comes as a result of trusting in Christ, believing in Him, relying on Him and His work. And His power in us. And so Scripture is showing us by negative example what happens when you put your confidence in yourself. You will fail. You will fall. It is a classic example of pride that goes before the fall. We cannot question Peter's sincerity and intentions and honestly wanting to follow Christ even to death. The problem was not that Peter had a strong drive. Rather, the problem was that Peter had a high view of himself. He thought he was able and willing to follow Christ. He thought, he was thoroughly convinced that he had a pretty good handle on his sin. However, he would learn the hard way that he is not as strong as he thinks he is. He would deny Christ three times and even invoke an oath swearing by God's name that he never knew Christ. How do you go from in a day, even a 12-hour period, I will follow you to the death to I swear I never knew the man. 
That's how deceitful and powerful our sin is. And Peter was one of the inner circle disciples who walked with Jesus for three years personally. Shows how powerful sin is. And brothers and sisters, this is a problem that every single one of us in here faces. We do have a natural blindness to our own sin while we are laser focused on other people's sins. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. When we get corrected or criticized, uh, how do we respond? Do we respond with this masterful defense to lay before people, showing them while why they are wrong, leading us to rather correct them about not viewing us more righteously or highly than they should or than they are? Do we spend more time being offended by what others say to us rather than humbly considering what they said? Now Spurgeon once said, when someone insults you, do not be angry with them because you are much worse than they know you to be. When we become disturbed over being charged with sin or being corrected, it is precisely because we have a high view of ourselves. We are surprised that someone would say anything bad about us rather than being surprised that it doesn't happen more often. And when we do discover our sin... We tend to try to fix it ourselves, don't we? I can handle this. Just give me some direction. I got this. I won't let it happen again. I'll try really hard, and I'm not going to let this happen again. And what happens? Happens again. Or we minimize our sin. We fall into discouragement and despair to try to deal with a guilty conscience, we minimize it, we, we make excuses, we blame shift. All the while, we are placing our confidence in ourselves. The issue when we see sin is not just, i got to stop it. The issue is, I have a lot of confidence in myself and I need to transfer that confidence for myself to Christ and in Brothers and sisters, this is why we hear the gospel every Lord's Day. This is why the gospel is still relevant to you as a believer. As Paul says, through the preaching of the gospel, you are strengthened. Because what is the gospel? It's, it's the good news of what Christ has done. Of who Christ is. And our union with Christ and dying to sin. And being buried with Him. In having this new life. And so as we turn our eyes away from ourselves, seeking to justify ourselves, cover ourselves, make big leaves, working hard to make up for our sin. Rather, we look to Christ. We look to the object of our faith. We hear Him. We hear who He is and all that He's done for us. And we're reminded once again that the power lies in Him. And as we behold His glory through the preaching of Christ, that is how we are transformed, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, from one degree of glory to the next. So we fix our eyes on Christ because He is the one. He is the light of the Gospel. And He is the one that has dispelled all darkness and continues to dispel that darkness 
in each one of us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to look to Christ, not to ourselves. That we would want to know more about him and see his glory. Let us see his glory with the eyes of faith. Let us die to ourselves and live for Christ. Give us that power and strength to do that so that we may love one another as Christ has commanded us. It was important to Him, our Lord. He has commanded us to do this. Let us do it in the power and strength that's found in Christ and not in ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.